In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. <clears throat> Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Oh, happy Halloween. I hope I didn't scare you too much when I emerged as a property. It's <coughs> <coughs> the so last Tuesday, <laughs> insecurity. <laughs> right, Barbara. I mean, insecurity, God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's really good. I have a second one. Okay, okay, we'll wait. <laughs> Who else? Anyone else? Not a nothing. Pretty outrageous group here, huh? <laughs> Any guesses? Boo. An insecurity guard. That was pretty good. <laughs> I think this is her. I think not coming back is it, right? <laughs> One year, my sister and my brother-in-law went as wine and cheese, and he wore like, a cheese hat. <laughs> And she just stood next to him at the party and was like, why do we have to stay here? When can we go home? And that was like, that was some good insecurity guard. That's great. Why did she... Can't really see it. Do you have Dracula teeth? vampire teeth? Ah, Bluetooth. Oh, oh Bluetooth. <laughs> These are really good, Barbara. I'm very impressed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. At least somebody did something this year. Jeez. Well, my son dressed up. But yeah, what was he? And uh, do you have any 
Any footage to prove he was, it? Ba- he was Batman. Not very uh, <coughs> creative, but his choice. Mm. So I made him, uh, let's see. So, and you didn't go and dress up as Catwoman? My goodness. I could hardly even handle making his costume. So there he is. All right. Nice mask. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. In but ours was last night. So, you know, today it's like Halloween's all over with. <laughs> I can't wait for it to be tomorrow. <laughs> here in Sleepy Hollow, Halloween is unbelievable. It's a month of like people all over the place, like thousands of people just walking around. Normally, like you just go in and get a cup of coffee, no problem. You just can't. The lines out to the street. It's very weird. Oh, uh, and by the way, in case you're not aware, Emily's pregnant. She's close to giving birth. Very, Another couple yes, of months. I'm like, uh, let's say. So that's her costume. She's yes. she's <laughs> she's pretending to be pregnant. <laughs> yes. Are you feeling okay? Yeah, I mostly, you know. I'm like um in the last just sort of last three months, three more months to go. So starting to feel a little weighed down but that's okay right you're just you're leaving the best part of it and going into the the waddling around yes exactly (laughs) yeah a couple weeks ago I was like jogging feeling good and now it's like right all those hormones pump you up and then suddenly yeah 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 Yeah, exactly well good luck with that thank you (laughs) you have any books you want to read read them before they come yes or what I learned with my yeah, son is to get a Kindle because then in the middle of the night when you're up um nursing nursing you can <laughs> or whatever read. yeah good idea yeah, but not great yeah you need like um mystery novels uh, right. it's not a great time to read like intense dharma texts no, for example it's not majamaka time it's like no <laughs> I, I think i remember reading one of the like it was like one of those modern king arthur stories and it was great um can't remember the name of it but it was like this thick and i read the whole thing you know yeah In yeah i read the whole I don't, have you guys read wolf hall i read that whole series it's like about henry the eighth like really fun yeah that's the type of things you want to read so neat neat so uh Emily's a ripe kiwi. <laughs> totally. That's what I should have gone as for Halloween. That would have That's been right. Good. That's right. That's a good one. <laughs> and Cynthia, you read um, Once a Feature King? Was that the big one? No, actually, no. Another that one. one I had read in high school, but this one was a more modern one. And uh, it, the name will come to me eventually, but it's um, it was it's great. Um, Oh, okay, well, let us know when you come. I'll through. try to remember. Right? Sorry. So let's dive in. This is exciting. We got the sort of base foundation uh, tradition school of tenants that uh, everything else is is uh, sort of uh, measured against, right? The Sautrantika. So Sautrantika is uh, chapter 12 in our book. And it's on page 275 of the physical hard copy book. And I thought uh, I'm going to like compile a little chart of all the cat, the ways that they 
define these things because it's a interesting little summary thing here. We got a definitive. So how the school of tenets arose, how it became a rose. It was the school of tenets and then it was a rose. It became a rose. A definitive detailed explanation does not appear in the text. However, it's clear that they developed more than 100 years after the Buddha passed into Nirvana. Some explain that because the Sarvastivada was the root of all Shravaka schools, this system of tenets must have split off from it. Others explain that the Kashmiri elders, such as Badanta, Sri Lata, refuted untenable elements of the Sarvastivada system within Vaibhashika and clarified this Sautrantika system and that this system therefore split off from the Sautrantika. According to what's found in the historical text, the person who first disseminated Sautrantika was an Indian master named Kuralata. It must be noted that he is identified as such on the assumption that Sautrantika and Darshantika are the same. Not only is this master renowned as the founder of Darshantika, some modern researchers say that references to the works of his of his this master can be found in the writings of Asanga and Vasubandhu. That Sautrantika and Darshantika are synonymous is clear in Bodhibhadra's explanation of the compendium. The story of the Sautrantika master Kumaralata is not clear in other historical texts. A brief account appears in the travel journal of the Tang Dynasty Chinese monk Zhang Zhuanzong. Master was born in Atlanta, Takshashila. His analytical understanding was awakened when he was small. When he was a young man, he was ordained, and having listened carefully to the great texts, he delighted in their profound meaning. Each day he recited. 32,000 stanzas from memory. <laughs> they had me up until that line. I was like, okay, it's pretty straightforward. I was able to read and write 32,000 stanzas. Then when he had become the crown ornament of the scholars of that time, he was renowned throughout the world. He established the correct view and destroyed the collection of wrong views, setting forth the correct explanation. Well, there was no question that he was unable to answer. He was respected in all the kingdoms of the five regions of India. Dozens of treatises he composed were disseminated extensively, and there was no one who did not study them. He is the founder of Sautrantika in this era, Ashwagosha in eastern India, Aryadeva in the south, Nagarjuna in the west, and Kumaralata in the north were known as the four suns that illuminate the world. Hearing of the greatness of the master, it came together with his army, frightened and intimidated the land of Takshashila, and captured the venerable master. I don't understand what that sentence is about, but the temple was built for him and his faithful believed in him, this temple. Regarding the treatises that he composed, it explained that they are garland of examples, garland of obscuration, to clarify the rising of the sun and the 900. However, so much for this master's incredible greatness, none of these texts that he wrote are extant. Most famous disciple of this master are Sri Lata and Hari Varman. Sri Lata composed the so on and so forth. And um, in 
let's see, Sangabhadra calls this master the elder and refutes him. Arivadra composed his text. He studied the views of both the great and small vehicles, and in that work he even cites a passage from Arya Deva's 400. From what appears in the Chinese travel journals, it seems so. Sautrantika and Mahayana tenant systems had many shared assertions. It's explained that the masters who clarified the tenets of Sautrantika were the Kashmir elder Vedanta, the monk Kumaralata, the monk Srilata, the monk Upama, the monk Adigama Deva, and so forth. In other words, they don't know hardly anything about this school. So let's go on to the tenets. The texts, because they base themselves only on sutras, as opposed to also Abhidharma, uh, that are scriptures of the Buddha, they are designated by the name Sao Trantika, which is a derivative of sutra, followers of the sutras. The sutras upon which the Sao Trantika primarily base themselves are from the first teaching, the Wheel of the Four Truths. The Vibhashikas assert that the seven books of the Abhidharma are the word of the Buddha. However, the Satrantika assert that the seven books of the Abhidharma are not the word of the Buddha, and that, <coughs> that they were composed by Arhats. Indeed, the majority of the Satrantika say that because there are many mistakes in those books, such as the explanation that space is a permanent substance, they were not made by Arhats, but by common beings who had the names same names as the Arhats. Interesting assertion. Because Arhats can't make mistakes. That would be impossible. Therefore, they say that they are not treatises that have the validity of sutras to say that the Vaibhashika say. And the sutras, a monk who is skilled in Tripitaka, is called a Tripitaka. If what you say is correct, the Tripitaka would not be complete because apart from those seven books of the Abhidharma and Abhidharma Pitaka would not is not to be seen. There's this idea in um, in the early tradition of somebody who has mastered the Tripitaka, and they call him a uh, someone who has mastered the Tripitaka, which is what Tripitaka Tripitaka means. And so, if you didn't have a Tripitaka, you couldn't you wouldn't have that term. So they assert there must have been a Abhidharma Pitaka. The Sautrantika respond by saying that those faults are not incurred because among the sutras, those parts that delineate the ultimate and describe the characteristics of phenomena constitute the Abhidharma Pitaka. That was a handy response, I thought. That's a very creative way of looking at that. That basically the sutras include material that should be considered to be Abhidharma, but there's not an actual separate set of books. Among the treatises extant today, at many points in Vasubhana's commentary on his treasury, the unshared assertions of the Kashmiri Vaibhashikas are refuted one by one. It's well known that, that Vasubhana himself held the Sautrantika position. Furthermore, it seems that such works as the Kashmiri master Subhagupta's proof of external objects, analysis of exclusion of others, examination of the Veda, and proof of omniscience are suitable to be taken as the Sautrantika's own texts. 
Atisha seems to have asserted that Dharmotarist works in valid knowledge or treatises that previously present the standpoint of the Sautrantika system in his open casket of jewels. Cool name. Atisha says such masters as Shubhagupta, Dharmotara, and the early Vasubandhu composed extensive treatises of the Shravaka Sautrantika, in addition to the works of Dharmakirti, where he delineated his system based on the position that external objects exist. This is a, a reference to the fact that uh, it's sort of on the surface, Dharmakirti presents a system that, that asserts that um, phenomena exist, external objects exist. Whereas if you read between the lines, so to speak, of Dharmakirti's work, he clearly indicates that you can't support the idea that phenomena exist, external objects exist. Uh, such as his large treatise on valid knowledge, known and known, uh, called the Exposition of Valid Knowledge, his middle-link treatise, The Ascertainment, and his commentaries on the first chapter of the exposition must be taken as text and set forth the tenets of Sautrantic. Anyway, a couple of boring little sections, and we enter into the definition and the divisions. When entered the quote before that, when entering into the analysis of external objects, we rely on the steps of the sutras. Okay. Sautrangata school of Telan's tenets is defined as a Buddhist school whose primary tenets include the assertion that both reflexive awareness, i.e. self-awareness, and external objects are truly established. <coughs> it's funny that, that that's their definition of it because you wouldn't think that that's the main assertions, but they don't define it by virtue of its main assertions. They define it by virtue of its unique assertions. So they assert that um, reflexive awareness and external objects are truly established. Are there any other schools that assert reflexive awareness? Yes. The Chittamatra school asserts reflexive awareness. Do they assert the existence of external objects? No. So therefore, this is a, a unique definition. If we and the, uh, if we look back at um, the Vibhashikas and see how are they defined, we see back on page two forty one. Um, let's see. The Vibhashika school is a Buddhist school of tenets whose foundational tenets are the assertion that an aspect of sense objects and reflexive awareness do not exist, and the assertion that external objects are truly established. Again, a, de a definition of um, that's sort of a negative, defining the school by what it, it uh, does not hold. They're called Vaibhashikas because they, they hold that the three times are substances or because they set forth their tenets in accordance with a certain text called the Vaibhashikas. Okay, anyway, back to Sautrantikas. Because they assert the tenets primarily following the sutras of the Buddha, their tenets, without following the great exegesis, they are called Sautrantikas because they're skilled in setting forth all phenomena through examples. They're also called Darshtantikas, exemplifiers. As Bodhibhaja's explanation says, they accept literally such sutras as the six doors, 
the good conduct, which is I've never heard of. I don't know. I didn't get it. I forgot to look those up, but um, because they follow those sutras, they are sautrantikas because they're skilled in setting forth phenomena with examples. The other name is Darshtantika. However, it's difficult to discern whether they are unshared or unique assertions of sautrantikas derived directly from the extensive sport and the Ten Levels Sutra. So the extensive sport, I believe, is uh, the Lalita Vistara, which is uh, generally considered to be a Mahayana biography of the Buddha that ends at his enlightenment. And the uh, Ten Levels is the Dasabhumika Sutra, it goes through the Ten Bhumis, which you would think might be a, a Mahayana Sutra, but actually the, the Bhumis are common to certain parts of the Hinayana so-called traditions. The only the difference between their version of the Bhumis and ours is that they hold that only one individual at a time in uh, many millennium uh, traverses the Bhumis, that is the Buddha, whereas we hold that everybody it's going to become a Buddha and therefore traverses the Bhumis. But anyway, there's this text in in, the, in that tradition called the Ten Bhumi Sutra, as well as the Six Door, Dharani, and the Prayer of Good Conduct found in the Conjure. Therefore, whether it's how trying to accept those sutras as, as the scripture of the Buddha that are the source of their tenets appears to require more investigation. In case anybody needs to find a good topic for a dissertation, you could work on that. If the Sautrantika are divided, they must, according to what appears in the Tibetan text, be posited as two. Sautrantika following scriptures, which is pretty much what we just described, and Sautrantika following reasoning, which is not to say that those following scripture don't have reasoning, but the ones following reasoning they excel in their use of logical reasoning because they include people like Dignaga and Dharmakirti. The first of those who propel tenets from their perspective of merely, merely asserting literally what appears in the sutras, they are, for example, the Sautrantika who follow the auto-commentary in the treasury of Abhidharma. The second, the Sautrantika following reasoning proposed tenets following reasoning in accordance with what is explained in Dharmakirti's seven treatises on valid knowledge. They are, for example, the Sautrantikas who accept the shared reasonings presented in that text. Okay, general explanation of their tenets. The most important assertions are easy to identify. One cites the verses that set forth the assertions of the school in Aryadeva's compendium on the essence of wisdom, Aryadeva being Nagarjuna's main disciple, who writes a text that goes through different traditions, and Jaitari's verse on distinguishing the Sugata's texts. It brings about an understanding of the most important general precepts of the Sautrantika. Aryadeva says, what is seen is not an object of the sense faculties. Which is a very confusingly worded statement. What is seen is not an object of the sense faculties. Sounds like a riddle. But if we read the second version, it's a little clearer what they're talking about. Jaitari gets, uh, I think, 
gets the star for this one. Consciousness knows by way of perceiving aspects. Right, so the, so this whole idea that uh, Sautrantika perception happens through the aspect that is reflected in the sense faculty of the outer object. The, the aspect of the outer object is reflected in the sense faculty and consciousness perceives the aspect, not the actual outer object. Second, it's consciousness is produced having an aspect. Um, which is pretty much completes the thought of what we just looked at in Jaitari's. In Jaitari, he says, consciousness knows by way of perceiving aspects of objects that appear to the sense faculty. Okay, so that's one point. Space is like the child of a barren woman, which is a poetic way of saying it's not a real thing. Uh, Jaitari repeats that. Cessation. It's just like space. Chaitari says the two cessations are like space. Arya Davis says material compositional factors do not exist. And his use of the term material is confusing to Chaitari. Um, says compositional factors not associated with mind do not exist. So those are the non-associated formations. That whole category of phenomena of like... Um, birth, abiding, disintegration, aging, <coughs> life force, person, syllable, word, time, those sort of things. All of those uh, are, are not real existent things. And we saw that coming, I think. Some of you saw that, mentioned that. Anyway, um, the three times are not accepted in Arya Deva. Uh, Jaitari says, Things do not exist across the three times. Uh, Arya Deva, there are no formless composites. And this is a reference to when, we, when they go through matter in the Vaibhashikas, there's the 11th type of matter is um, sometimes called non-material matter um, or um, mental matter. Jaitari says the obstructive formless does not exist. And the main quality of matter or form is that it obstructs. So by saying the obstructive formless, he's talking about a type of matter that is formless, which is a contradiction. But anyway, they both hold that it doesn't exist. So Trantikos are wise, and they, they both agree on that. <laughs> Both of these passages identify the most important assertions by Bashik explanation that the five, sorry, that the physical sense faculties understand an object without an aspect is incorrect. In the Sautrantika, they assert that the aspect of the object appears to the consciousness and dependence on the sense faculty. The object is known from a sense consciousness having the aspect of the object. That's the first major uh, distinguishing factor or uh, idea of the Sautrantika too. What is known as space is posited as a non-implicative negation. So a non-implicative negation is a negation that does not indicate anything else. It negates what can cannot possibly be true. And uh, so in other words, space is not a real thing. The mere negation of obstructive contact, contact 
like the child of a barren woman, it is not a functioning thing. Both analytical and non-analytical sensations like space are posited as such non-implicative negations. So here, unlike in the Vibhashika, when we went through the Vibhashikas and looked at the, the way they talk about the cessations, they were like things. They were like entities that were the object of the experience of a mind in cessation that uh, by virtue of being perceived by those minds caused those minds to stay or dwell in those cessations. And here, instead, the subtragicals are saying the, there is no real object of those cessations that exists as a thing. They are just simply uh, negations. Compositional factors not associated with mind, vi prayukta, samskrita, samskaras rather, do not exist as material substances and are imputedly existent. And when they use the word material, they use it in a funny way, not necessarily meaning mind, a matter as opposed to mind, but uh, substance. Um, let's see, things are merely momentary conditioned phenomena and do not extend across three times, non-revelatory form, that's the fancy term that this translation team uses for that type of form, non-revelatory form, form that is not revealed, cannot be perceived, is not actual form, and because of that, physical, verbal, mental actions must be the mental factor of intention. And what that means is, let's see, um, physical, verbal, and mental actions, i.e. karma, must be the mental factor of intention. So mental factors exist in uh, skanda number four, samskaras, and in samskara four, we see all the mental factors. There's minds and mental factors. And um, they say that they reside in the mental factor of intention as opposed to um, having some separate entityness to them. In general, the way proponents of the system delineate the aggregates, constituents, and sources, for the most part, agrees with what appears in such works as the Sangya's Compendium and Vasubandhu's Treasury and his explanation of the five aggregates. They differ from the Vaibhajikas in that they don't accept that all phenomena are substantially established and that non-revelatory form is actual form. They do not accept the foundation consciousness, the Aliyavijnana, and the afflicted mental consciousness asserted by Chittamatra. And they also differ from them asserting that the mental consciousness is the referent of the self that serves as the foundation of actions and effects. Let's take that again. They also differ from them them meaning the Chittamatrams. The Sautrantikas differ from the Chittamatrams in asserting that the mental consciousness is the referent of the self that serves as the foundation of actions and effects. So they, they're basically saying the sixth consciousness is the referent of the term self. Um, to the extent that it serves as the foundation of actions and effects. And in that, that is where karma is created and stored, which is 
as we said earlier, as we've talked about earlier in this course, one of the major considerations that all Buddhist schools have to explain is how does karma function? Where is it stored? Where is karma, unused karma, unspent or expended karmic momentum? Where does that live in the phenomena of a person? So when they say the uh, the referent of a self, of the self, they uh, they're not asserting that there is a self, but that the word self refers to the um, mental consciousness that serves as the foundation for actions and effects. In addition, the system agrees with Vaibhashika that external objects are established from the accumulation of partless particles, that subtle particles are partless, and that they do not touch each other. However, Vaibhashikas assert that there is space between subtle particles, and Sautrantikas assert that there is no space, also space, uh, due to the the weak nuclear force is that the is that the uh, is it the strong nuclear force that keeps the elementary particles apart, or is it the the weak nuclear force that keeps them together or apart? Nobody knows the weaker strong. Okay, uh, let's see. Vibhashika does not make a distinction between the four elements and the constituents of the four elements. I think we talked about this, didn't we? The uh, there's the quality of the four elements and the and the um, actual four elements. The four elements as functional principles: moisture, solidity, cohesion, and uh, movement. And the actual four elements. Um, it appears that they that they assert that although the constituents of the four elements are all present in all compo composite forms, the actual four elements are not necessarily present. The specifically characterized and generally characterized some essential assertions of the school of tenets are set forth in summary form above. Now the assertions of these will be explained in more detail, which includes the following. Specifically and generally characterized, the proof that conditioned phenomena are momentary, the proof that cause and effect are necessarily sequential, the way external objects are posited, the division into the five objects, and the minds that comprehend them. First is the explanation of the specifically characterized and generally characterized. When the system of Sautrantika following reason is emphasized, the ultimate and the conventional should be posited from the perspective of the specifically and generally characterized. Thus, Dharmakirti says, that which is ultimately able to perform a function, that is what exists ultimately here. The others exist conventionally. Those are explained to be the specifically and the generally characterized. And that differs from the Vaibhashikas somewhat significantly. Do you remember the way that they describe the uh, ultimate and, and the conventional or the relative? Anybody? Something with uh, to do with things being broken down? Does that ring any bells? <laughs> in, in the Vaibhasha, because that which can be broken down uh, with a hammer or mentally taken apart are conventional and those which can't be taken apart are ultimate. In other words, 
uh, partless particles are ultimate and any conglomerations of partless particles are conventional. So here we have a very a much different uh, criteria for ultimacy. This is simply able to perform a function. <coughs> he, meaning Dharmakirti, is saying that all those phenomena that are able to perform the function of producing their own effect Everything has its own effect, as witnessed by direct perception. And direct perception is an ultimate awareness in this system. It's not like enlightened awareness, but it's an ultimate awareness. Uh, it's just the way that it's talked about in this system. A valid cognitive, direct, direct perception is ultimate awareness, i.e. valid cognition ultimately exists in this system. On the other hand, all those phenomena that are not able to perform a function exists conventionally. That which ultimately exists and that which conventionally exists are called respectively specifically and generally characterized phenomena. That's because it's true as an entity for an ultimate awareness. That is direct perception that's unmistaken with respect to its appearing object. Uh, so this goes back to our analysis of the the way perception occurs, appearing object, apprehended object, and referent um, object or um, object of engagement. That which ultimate, let's say, uh, Thus, because it is true as an entity for an ultimate awareness, that is direct perception that is unmistaken with respect to its appearing object. So direct perception that that does not get at its object through um, a, a, an image, a general image. In other words, conceptual mind gets at its get at gets at its object through a general image. We talk about we're talking about objects right now. And when we talk about objects, we're conceptualizing the whole thing. So we're getting at the the I uh, we're getting at the concept of object by generating a mental image of object. Whereas direct perception doesn't conceptualize, doesn't talk about things. Direct perception just perceives through the five senses and gets at its object through the aspect. So it doesn't confuse the general image or idea of an object or generally characterized phenomena with the specifically characterized phenomena, but just directly cognizes the specifically characterized phenomena. And that is called an ultimate truth. Because it is true as an entity for a conventional awareness that is thought, it is called conventional truth. The, the ways of positing the two truths from the perspective of how they appear to awareness and whether they are ultimately able to perform a function is explained later. So, But those are the two criteria for real things, is that they... Um, they appear to awareness. Real things appear to ultimate awareness. And ultimate, again, in this tradition does not mean like enlightened. It means genuine, direct, valid cognition awareness and uh, able to perform a function. So uh, we, we generally say observable 
and able to perform a function. Cynthia. Just one question. I, I suspect the answer is not, but in terms of something being able to perform a function, and you know, in terms of this definition of what's, I guess, ultimate or not, the those partless particles, they perform the function of being part of, you know, building up into these other compounded objects. Is that considered performing a function or not? Um, like being a building block, is that a function or not? I don't, let's see, is that a function or not? Um, I don't think so. I mean, they would not meet that other criteria of being able to appear to direct perception. But it just seems like they do perform a function in some way, but they may not acknowledge it that way. Okay. As they, as one particle forms, uh, joins with another, what is the function of that? Did, did they do anything? Well, the question, I guess, if I, I would just sort of flip it to, can there be a compounded object without those particles? And the, from that point of view, the particles seem to be serving a function of creating a compounded or being part of, you know. Yeah, let's keep that one. That's a good question. Is, is the function of compounding a, a sufficient <coughs> function to make partless particles into things, into uh, ultimate phenomena? That's a good question. Let's let's keep that and see if we uh, get any resolution to that. That which is not merely imputed by thought but is established from its own side is the meaning of specifically characterized. That thing specific that specifically characterized thing impermanent ultimate truth conditioned phenomena product and actual object of that comprehension of direct valid knowledge are synonyms. Examples are a pot, a pillar, and a consciousness because they provide an appearance which is not imputed by thought for the direct perception that apprehends them from the side of their own mode of subsistence. <coughs> they are said to be established by their own characteristics without being mere imputations by thought. When specifically characterized as divided, there are three forms consciousness and non-associated compositional factors there are three sorry forms consciousness non-compositional factors these have already been explained extensively in part two and of in part two of volume one if something is specifically characterized it must be a thing whose place time nature are not mixed with anything else to illustrate how the place time and nature are mixed take a pillar as an example in general pillars exist both to the east and the west however the pillar that exists in the east does not exist in the west that is unmixed place and so they have three types of unmixed unmixed or unique location or place unmixed or, or unique time and then um, unmixed or unique nature wood versus iron it is explained that because the specifically characterized are true in the face of an ultimate awareness direct perception 
they are called ultimate truths. A phenomenon that is a mere imputation by thought is the meaning of generally characterized, which is synonymous with conventional truth, permanent, unconditional phenomena. Example is space, a mere absence, apart from being mere appearances to thought. They are phenomena that do not appear to direct perception, therefore they are asserted to be mere imputations by thought. Thus, not only must the three unconditioned phenomena, space and the two cessations, be posited as generally characterized unconditioned phenomena, but also conceptual constructs such as the categories of quality and qualified and generality in particular. Dharmakirti sums that up in his verse, which we'll skip. As, we, as was explained above, things like generality, common locus, particularity, sameness, indifference, relation, contradiction, and what is to be proven a proof, which are concepts imputed by thought, are in themselves generally characterized categories. However, whatever is one of those is not necessarily generally characterized. Did you catch that nuance? Whatever thing is, is, um, however, whatever phenomena is one of those is, um, um, is, is a unique instance of common locus generality, sorry, generality, common locus, particularity, sameness, indifference. is not necessarily generally characterized, is a specifically characterized phenomena. But the generally character what is generally characterized is the idea of generality, common locus, particularity, sameness, and so forth. Example. For example, a golden pot is a generality. A common locus of a thing and a pot, a particularity. So <coughs> a golden pot uh, is stated, uh, uh, they, don't, they don't really say like the um, idea of a golden pot um, as opposed to an actual golden pot. An actual golden pot would be a particularity. But a golden pot, the idea of golden pot is a generality. The common locus <clears throat> place of a thing and a pot is a particularity, specific, and is, uh, uh, let's see, a common locus of a thing and a pot, a particularity, and is one. <laughs> I don't know, I, I can't get the is one part that's uh, confusing to me. Being a product is a proof. Sound being uh, being a product is a proof. Um, that is, it's. Let's see. He's going through the ideas that he just listed. They just listed at the beginning of the paragraph: generality, common locus, particularity. Right. So they're giving examples of each kind. Golden pot is a generality. Um, the common locus of a thing and a pot. A particularity is an example of particular particularity. Oneness is uh, an example of sameness. Being a product is a proof. 
relation and contradiction. He's, they skipped relation and contradiction. Uh, being a product is a proof. What is to be proven and proof? Sound being impermanent is something proven. Okay. Fire and smoke are relations, so they're not going in order. Fire and smoke is a relation. Hot and cold are a contradiction. In addition, these are all also all specifically characterized. <laughs> so many many uh, words can both can convey both a generality and a sp uh, particularity. When you say a golden pot, it could be there's an actual golden pot. I think that's what he was saying in the first line, actually, that if you read it, he, he might have been saying a golden pot is one, a generality, two, a common locus of a thing and a, and a pot and is a particularity. I think he might be applying all of those to that, you know, that it can be this, this or this. I don't know. Well, maybe. Everything before that semicolon, I suspect is all referring to that first golden pot thing for, for what it's worth eh? maybe it does appear that the semicolon is is separating things right right and so i kind of when as you were reading it i that that was an alternate reading i was seeing that because even as you mentioned that a golden pot could be Either a oh, yeah, or yeah, a that's right. That's right. Thanks. That's great. So a golden pot is four things. It's it's a generality. It's a common locus of a thing in a pot. It's a particularity and it's a one. <laughs> that's good. Thank you, Cynthia. <laughs> Riddles. Two things such as being a product and being a permanent, are differentiated by thought as different in the sense of excluding what is not itself. If such differentiating factors were established from the object's own side without being merely appearances to thought, being a product and being a permanent would have to become different entities. So they're going through all these different examples of how generality and particularity manifest. <coughs> Uh, let's see. In that case, one would have to assert that, that those two were different entities that were not the result of cause and effect, and that would entail the absurd consequence that they were unrelated different aspects. Therefore, Sautrantica accepts that functioning things are established from their own side without being mere imputations by thought, and that unconditioned phenomena are mere imputations by thought. When the generally characterized are divided, there are three. The generally characterized that depend on things, depend on non-things, and that depend on phenomena that are common to both things and non-things. Examples are respectively the appearance of a pot to a thought consciousness apprehending a pot is um, the first example. It's generally characterized that depends on things, uh, which is, let's see, uh, the appearance of a pot to a thought consciousness apprehending a pot is, is a thought consciousness apprehending pot is thinking about a pot and has 
the image of a pot in mind. And let's see. The appearance of space to a thought consciousness apprehending space is a non-thing. So thinking about a non-thing like a unicorn or a son of a barren woman. And then the third option is uh, generally characterized phenomena that depend on phenomena that are common to both things and non-things. And the, the example of that is the appearing object of the thought that apprehends a place where there is no pot. <laughs> That's how they tell jokes in Satrantica. <laughs> because they depend on things, non-things, and both. There are three types of generally characterized. Isn't that cool? Generally characterized phenomena are not things. They don't perform a function. They're not observable, but they have types. Types of non-things. That's neat. He's, he, who is he? Dharmakirti is saying that although the generally characterized is not divided from the perspective of an independently established nature, it is divided from the perspective of its support, such as things, non-things, and phenomena common to both, depending on these three, it exists as the objects apprehended by thought. In brief, the specifically characterized have four features. So first we went through the features of the realm of things that exist only in thought. And now we're going to go more detail into the realm of things that exist outside of thought. These have four features. The feature of their nature is that they're able to perform a function. The feature of their mode of appearance is that they appear uniquely. The feature of the subject is that they are not objects that appear merely through the dominant condition of the words that express them. And uh, the fourth, uh, the feature of their function is that they produce the consciousness that apprehends them. They're observable. The features of the generally characterized are the opposite. They're not able to perform a function. They're similar in the sense that they appear commonly um, to the consciousness that takes them as its appearing objects instead of having a uniqueness Specifically characterized phenomena are unique. Generally characterized phenomena can be have a sameness to them. They're similar. Three, they become appearing objects merely through the dominant condition of the words. The word, you know, naming language brings uh, ideas or constructs or concepts into reality into its not reality but into appearance and four they do not produce the awareness that apprehends them dharma curity sums this up because they're able and unable to perform functions because of being similar not similar because of being and not being the objects of terms and because when the other causes are present awareness exists or does not exist they have these these amazingly cryptic little summaries of the of the characteristics of generally and specifically characterized phenomena, and thankfully our authors have unpacked these cryptic statements for us. Thus, he delineates this extensively at this point in the chapter on inference for oneself, and especially in the chapter on direct perception and Dharmakirti's exposition of valid cognition, which famously is said to have four chapters: one chapter on pramana or valid cognition, one chapter on direct perception, 
one chapter on inference for oneself and one chapter on inference for others. So the authors are saying in the chapter on inference for oneself and direct perception, Dharmakirti extensively sets forth reasons to prove that to generally characterize are not functioning things. For example, something like the appearance of the pot in the manner of being the opposite of non-pot to the thought consciousness apprehending pot. That is the mental image of the pot is the meaning of the term that serves as the explicit object of expression of the term pot. It is not the functioning pot itself. If the pot itself were the meaning of the term, then by merely using the term pot, the pot itself would have to become the appearing object of the thought consciousness apprehending pot. In that case, even the thought consciousness apprehending pot would have to clearly perceive the pot, as does an eye consciousness apprehending pot. Just the eye consciousness still exists, even in those whose eyes... Um, Sorry, just as the eye consciousness still exists even in those whose eyes, its dominant condition are impaired, the uh, pot would have to appear clearly to their thoughts, but it does not appear in that way. Such things as an eye sense faculty are needed to produce the consciousness that clearly perceives the pot. Therefore, consciousness that clearly perceives the pot is not produced in dependence on just the term pot. In other words, um, the idea goes beyond just the, uh, the language. This is not a functioning thing because it is expressed by word and because the sense faculties have effects. And also, words indicate what terms designate. They are for the purpose of conventions. At that time, this specifically characterized as absent, when you're talking about terms and objects and, uh, sorry, concepts. Therefore, terminology does not designate it. <coughs> He's saying that specifically characterized are not the explicit objects of terms. If they were, it would absurdly follow that the specifically characterized thing to which a term is applied earlier would have to exist later when the term is used. So what then is the actual object of a term? The appearing object of the thought consciousness is the actual object of the use of the term. There's a timing difference in the world of specifically characterized phenomena where when we <coughs> experience them with ultimate awareness of direct awareness, direct apprehension or perception, um, uh, that same phenomena does not exist when we think about it the, the moment later. For example, in the case of a thought consciousness that apprehends a golden pot to be a pot, the golden pot appears as a pot. <laughs> And its actual object of apprehension also appears as a pot. Those two things that appear, the golden pot and the mental image of a pot, become mixed into one and in how they appear to thought and remain that way. This mode is what is called mixing its appearance and its designation into one, which is the famously how um, conceptual thought gets at its object by mixing the appearance and the designation. 
Dharmakirti says the awareness that understands that term mistakenly sees them as if they are one, sees the appearance and the designation as one. So as soon as we see an object that we know, like an apple or a table or a chair, we immediately associate it with the term that indicates the type of phenomena things are. We immediately, in other words, in simple language, we immediately label or pigeonhole things and they become certain entities. He's saying that based on the use of the word tree, there's an appearance to a thought consciousness that apprehends a tree, which comes to understand that to be that which has branches and leaves, although that appearance is not a specifically characterized tree, due to the appearance and the designation being mistaken as the same, its appearance to thought and the specifically characterized external objects appear to, to be the same to conceptual mind. This appearance in the phrase, the appearance and the designation being mistaken as the same refers to the basis of appearance, which is the specifically characterized external thing. The designation is the meaning of the word, a non-functioning phenomena. It must be taken as the explicit object of thought. In other words, the explicit object of thought, of a thought, of a conceptual consciousness is a concept. The topic of the meaning of words <coughs> is of the utmost importance in the Buddhist understanding of the valid means of cognition because there's much to discuss, such as how it was first delineated by Dignaga and later expanded upon by Dharmakirti will be considered separately in the later volume. Thus, just as it is incorrect to specifically characterize things as the reference of terms, they are not the reference of terms reference of terms. It is similarly incorrect that they are the objects apprehended by thought. If what is perceived by the cognition that apprehends the generality tree were a real entity, the conceptual cognition apprehending tree would be unmistaken. In that case, there would <coughs> inevitably be two faults. It would mean that the generality that is substantially distinct from the individual instances of tree that it pervades could appear to an unmistaken awareness. <coughs> Excuse me. In other words, it would mean that we could perceive with our senses concepts. And the individual instances of tree would become conflated. <laughs> All trees would be one entity. Also, if the awareness of the generality of tree were unmistaken, not only would the appearance to awareness of the generality of tree have to be specifically characterized, it would also have to be a tree. <laughs> The idea of a tree would have to be a tree. Thus, wherever there were a thought consciousness apprehending tree, there would be a tree. <laughs> your mind would turn into a tree. There would be a tree in your mind. Your mind would be a tree. It would be impossible for anyone to be deprived of wood. <laughs> All you'd have to do is think of tree and your mind would be wood. <laughs> in the same way that that the tree itself, which appears as an external object, as a functioning thing, would have to be refuted. 
There would also be such faults as that tree and instances of tree would be different substances and unrelated. Oh dear, this would be a terrible situation. Dharmakirti sums it up by saying the nature that appears as external as one and as something differentiated from others has no elements to investigate, therefore it's not real. He's saying that if such non-functionally phenomena were not mere designations by thought, one would improperly have to assert that they would be able to form functions. Therefore, one would have to assert that any appearance to the thought-apprehending tree that it appears as the nature of a tree, that it appears to be the same as an external tree, that it appears as differentiated from what is not tree, is a tree. However, those appearances to thought are not able to fulfill what is needed for a tree according to the wishes of a person <laughs> seeking a tree. Therefore, the appearance and awareness of the generality of tree is not a tree. A tree, my kingdom for a tree. In summary, the essential point of these reasonings is that if those phenomena for thought were established as functioning things themselves, those subjective thought consciousnesses would not be mistaken with respect to their appearing objects. In that case, they would have to be established in the way that they appear to those thought consciousnesses. The fault would absurdly follow that the mode of being of things would be confused because they would have to be established in the confused way that they appear to thought. That was a rather um, remarkable feat that they actually spent three, four, five, six, seven, seven pages discussing specifically generally characterized phenomena. Seven pages discussing an idea that generally can't be expanded for beyond like two sentences. Okay, proof that condition phenomena are momentary. This should be interesting. Sautrantika does not assert, as Vaibhashika does, that the characteristics of conditioned phenomena being produced and so forth are sequential. They assert instead that at the very time that a conditioned phenomenon is produced, it also abides and ceases. <laughs> this is where the, their sense of logicalness seems to have stopped functioning. Therefore, they prove that conditioned phenomena are momentary in the sense of disintegrating each moment thereby. In general, the meaning of impermanence can be posited as of two types. Uh, continuous impermanence, and momentary. <clears throat> the first is also called coarse impermanence, and the second is called subtle. If these are illustrated with a person named, for example, David Dutta, our favorite scapegoat, the fact that David Dutta does not remain after his death is something that can be directly ascertained by an uneducated cowherd. The Joe, the Joe on the street. Therefore, it is very coarse. The fact that the David Dutta of the first moment does not remain in the second moment is subtler than that. The fact that he disintegrates from his very first moment is subtler than that. Therefore, to understand subtle impermanence generally, one must first develop an understanding of coarse 
impermanence, of course. Here, momentary in the phrase condition phenomena proven to be momentary must be taken to mean that all condition phenomena have a nature of disintegration due to the cause that produces them. And that they do not remain for a second moment from the time they are established. For that reason, when conditioned phenomena are proven to be momentary, the main point that must be proven is that their disintegration does not depend on a cause that arises later. This is extremely important. Dharmakirti says, without a cause, they disintegrate. This follows from their own nature. In other words, uh, built-in obsolescence. Natural obsolescence. This is saying that as soon as a product is established, its disintegration follows naturally due to its own nature. Its own destruction is produced by the very cause that brought about its creation without relying on any cause beyond the cause that brought it into existence. Dharmakirti's ascertainment says products that have the nature of the aggregates, constituents, and sources are established as impermanent. Therefore, there is no fault. This passage removes objections about the identification of conditioned phenomena, about the proof that they are impermanent, and about the fact that their disintegration does not depend on a cause that arises later. One should know that such statements as, it does not follow that disintegration is causeless, and disintegration is the nature of things are delineated extensively there in that text by Dharmakirti. Furthermore, in such text as the 13th chapter of Shantarakshita's Compendium of Principles, on the analysis of stable things, its commentary by Kamala Sheila, and the proof of momentariness by Tarmotara, and its explanation by the Brahmin <coughs> Muktakumba. Muktakumba. Hmm. Subtle and profound points of reason are delineated that prove that conditioned phenomena are momentary. Among these texts, let us consider. Sorry, let us set forth some crucial points from Dharmotra's text. Okay. He starts off by saying, what is the thing that will disintegrate? Is it produced having a quality of extinction from a, from a natural cause? Or is it produced having the quality of abiding? Regarding the first idea, a thing will disintegrate by itself through its quality of extinction. Therefore, a cause of disintegration does not act in any way whatsoever. If it were something whose nature is not to to cease, then even if it were a hundred causes of disintegration, it would not deviate from its nature of not ceasing, because it would not be able to disintegrate. A cause of disintegration would have no effect on it whatsoever. So if something is disintegratable, it... Um, It has that quality in all moments of its existence, which is only one moment, by the way. And if things don't have the quality of disintegratable, then they can't suddenly change and become disintegratable. They would not cease. Here, someone asserts that the disintegration of a thing depends on, depends on its being disintegrated by another cause. 
that arises later. This is investigated from two perspectives. Things are produced from their own cause with the nature to naturally disintegrate, or they're produced with the nature to abide without disintegrating. According to the first position, position disintegration is established without depending on a cause that arises later according to the second even if there came to be a hundred causes of disintegration that arose later the nature of something to abide would not change therefore the passage presents an absurd consequence dealing with the impossibility of disintegration of conditioned phenomena taking place due to a cause of disintegration that arises later the same text says therefore whoever imagines that a thing through its own cause abides briefly and then disintegrates that does not disintegrate as soon as that's produced is incorrect there's no way that like a thing could like be produced and exist and then some trigger happens like a timer goes off and it disintegrates. Like how would it change from being present to suddenly disintegrating? If one says the conditioned phenomena are produced in the first moment of the body and the second, then they would have to be both production and abiding in the second moment, just as there was in the first, because there would have to be both production and abiding in the second moment as well. It would never disintegrate. The passage presents this fault, refutes the objection. Also, someone might say, a pot is not established as having a nature of disintegration based merely on its own entity. It must be established as impermanent in dependence on a cause of disintegration that arises later. To respond, the fault with this is that it is certain, for example, that a white piece of wood wool cloth becomes red in dependence on the red dye that arises later. There's no certainty that it will become red without the dye. In the same way, because it would be certain that the disintegration of a pot would depend on a cause that arose later, there would be no certainty that it will disintegrate. What if, what if something happened to that cause of disintegration that was supposed to arise later? Then that thing would be eternal, and that would be a big problem. Furthermore, there's the fault that because things are limitless, although there would be some things that disintegrate due to a cause of disintegration that arose later, there would also be some things that did not encounter a cause of disintegration that arose later, thereby making them permanent. If it were, you know, if it were based on something else happening, then it's bound to there's bound to be mistakes. And, and there a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in reality. So, you know, if there's like a 1% mistake rate, that's a lot of things that end up not disintegrating. There would be a lot of permanent things floating around. <laughs> That'd be a problem. It'd be a big problem. How are you going to clean up those things that don't disintegrate? Someone might ask in that case, if things are impermanent, how does one identify something by saying, this is the pillar that I saw yesterday? There's no fault because when we see things as being the same over time, because they occur in an unbroken continuum of similar type. So the pillar of one moment produces the pillar of a next moment when it disintegrates. And because we're conditioned by the conception of impermanence that apprehends earlier and later moments is the same. So interestingly, every phenomena disintegrates 
end causes the next moment of its so-called continuum. Things are pretty busy. They're doing, they're doing a lot. They're appearing, disintegrating, and causing their next moment all at the same time. Prajnakar Gupta's text says, if disintegration meant that a thing exists at one time and disintegrates another time, that would be mistaken. Whenever a thing exists, its disintegration exists. Therefore, it's correct to say that it is endowed with disintegration. Thus, it must be accepted that whatever is the thing is established simultaneously with its own disintegration. If this is not accepted, it would not be correct that conditioned phenomena are momentary. This is what Sautrantik asserts. Someone might say, conditioned phenomena are seen to remain for many moments without disintegrating. Therefore, it's not certain that they disintegrate in each moment. We respond, consider a conditioned phenomena that remains without disintegrating for a period of five moments. In the second moment, is the substance that remains for five moments lost or not lost? If you say that it is lost, then at the time of the second moment of a thing that remains for five moments, due to the substance that remains for five moments having been lost, it would not remain for more than a single moment, therefore proving that it is momentary. If you say that in the second moment the substance that remains for five moments is still not lost, then the substance that remained from the previous first moment and the substance that remains, sorry, five, uh, first moment, and the substance that remains for five moments would still not be lost in the second moment in telling the fault that that thing would have a period of six moments. <coughs> That conditioned phenomena are, are momentary is proven with many such arguments. Thus, the way the Sautrantikas posit that conditioned phenomena are momentary is different from that of Ibashikas. Because of this important point, the way that they posit the three times is also very different. The Sautrantik conditioned phenomena are necessarily in the present. Among the three times only, the present is a functioning thing. The other two are posited as non-functioning. When a single thing such as a sprout disintegrates, all the entities of, it, of the parts of the sprout cease, and nothing else is obtained. Therefore, they assert that the past is a non-functioning thing, a non-implicative negation, that is the mere cessation of the impermanent thing that is disintegrated. The future is posited as the factor of not being produced due to the fact that the cause for the production of a phenomena exists, but the conditions are not complete. Therefore, like the past, the future has no entity at all. It's the mere elimination of its object of negation. Thus, they assert that it must be posited as a non-functioning thing. Thus, regarding the way that permanent is posited, that is, as the opposite of momentary disintegrating, Dharmakirti says that whose nature does not disintegrate the wise cause permanent. Permanent is asserted to be a phenomenon whose nature does not disintegrate. And this sort of goes on and on at the same rate. So let's Skip to the bottom chapter, uh, sorry, the bottom paragraph of this page. Furthermore, an essential point relating to the momentary disintegration of conditioned phenomena and the fact that the opposite of that is posited as permanence is the topic of negation and elimination in the text on the valid means of negation 
of knowledge, elimination, negation, isolate, and elimination of the other are synonyms. They are different ways of saying the same thing depending on the context. This is because when things are stated verbally or when they appear to thought, they do so through elimination of what is not them. They do not appear through their aspect being revealed to the mind by a specifically characterized phenomena because negation has already been discussed in detail. We will, uh, one should look there. Proof that cause and effect are sequential. Derived from the proof that conditioned phenomena are momentary, this system asserts that cause and effect are necessarily sequential, as was discussed at length in previous volumes. The Buddhist schools all reject the notion that there can be production without a cause, that the world was established by the prior movement of the mind of a creator, and that an effect arises from a permanent cause. There is also no disagreement among Buddhist schools in asserting that cause and effect must share a similar type and that the various qualities of an effect arise from the various qualities of cause. Hold on one second here. We need some more of a fluid-like substance sitting over somewhere else by mistake. case of causation from the perspective of time there's the division into direct and indirect cause on how effects arise such logic makes the division into substantial cause and cooperative condition the direct cause is posited as the nearby cause of its effect whereas the indirect cause is the distant cause they assert that the substantial cause acts as the unique cause and the Cooperative conditions act as the common cause. For example, a barley seed acts as the cause of a barley sprout. It does not act as the cause of a rice sprout. In the same way, a rice seed acts as the cause of a rice sprout. It does not act as the cause of a barley sprout. Therefore, those seeds are unique causes. Water and manure act as causes of both. They are posited as common causes. <coughs> Water and manure act as causes of both. They are posited as common causes. Sorry. The production of a sprout, such as a barley sprout or a rice sprout, takes place primarily due to the substantial cause. Its many qualities, such as whether the sprout is large or small, or good or bad, arise primarily by the power of the cooperative conditions. For effects, from the perspective of time, one can posit direct effects and indirect effects. And from the perspective of continuity, one can posit substantial effects and cooperative effects. In this system, it is asserted that cause and effect are necessarily sequential, and that as soon as the cause ceases, its effect arises without interruption. These two actions, the cessation of the cause and the arising of the effect, are simultaneous. It's like the two sides of a scale. One side goes up and the other goes down simultaneously. If cause and effect were simultaneous, both would have to be similar in having already been established. There's no need for something that has already been established to be produced by a cause again. If the effect existed at the time of a cause, the cause would not be 
causing anything. <clears throat> they assert that it is infeasible for cause and effect to be simultaneous. The exposition says that which benefits is a producer. As it says, for something to be posited as a cause, it must aid in the production of its effect. For things that are simultaneous, it is not suitable, sorry, tenable for one to produce or benefit the other. Uh, let's see, he's going to go through the different types of causes and conditions. Uh, so let's skip that paragraph. The bottom paragraph says, also the Sautrantica says, how can two phenomena that arise together be established as both a phenomena that causes production and a phenomena that is produced? They cannot because they do not have the power to produce each other. No phenomena has the power to produce a phenomena whose entity has already been produced. And they're going, the uh, authors are going back and forth between by Bosch against Sautrantica, so let's skip this and let's go towards the end of this section. <coughs> Again, just like the uh, specific and generally characterized phenomena, they're able to uh, stretch this out for many, many, many pages. Go to the conclusion on page 301. <laughs> um, in the middle of 301, let us turn now to a brief illustration of the reasonings that appear in the text of valid cognition used by the Sautrantica system to prove that cause must be earlier and effect must be later. They're still trying to prove this seven pages later. Dharmakirti says, what did not exist earlier has no power. What exists later, no connection. Therefore, all causes are earlier than effects. If cause and effect were simultaneous, the cause would not exist prior to the effect and therefore wouldn't have no power to aid in the production of the cause. And because the effect would have already been established later, there'd be no need for the cause to aid in the production of the effect. This is something that we all take for granted, but they seem to feel they need to prove it. These faults would arise, therefore all causes must exist prior to their effects. Vinny says, regarding the statement, because at that time cause and effect are not assembled together, 
because when the effect has been produced, the cause ceases. When the effect has been produced, the cause ceases. Therefore, the two are not assembled together. Thank you, Vino. The school asserts that when the effect has been produced, the cause on which it relied ceases. Therefore, they assert that it's impossible for the two cause and effect to be assembled at the same time. Thus, one should understand that unlike Vaibhashika, Sautrantika does not assert that a simultaneously arising cause of a phenomena and a cause of similar type of phenomena are actual causes of that phenomena, because they speak rather of an effect sign that proves a preceding cause. They prove that cause must be earlier and effect must be later. Phew. How do they posit external objects? Finally, something important. This system asserts that external objects form mind, sorry, form sound and so forth arise from the cause of the four great elements. They are established from the accumulation of external subtle particles. The subtle particles that are the basis of composition of such physical things are partless and do not touch each other. Such assertions are shared by Vaibhashika and Sautrantika. However, Vaibhashika asserts there's a space and Sautrantika there says there's no space. The system's position on partless particles and how coarse forms are established form from their accumulation has already been explained in detail in the first volume. Skipping the quote, as this shows, Sautrantikas assert that external objects are truly established. This is refuted by Chittamatra, who explained that such things as forms are merely appearances to internal consciousnesses, that their appearance is external is merely mistaken appearance, and that sense consciousnesses, such as the eye consciousness, which perceives things such as forms as external, distant, and cut off, are mistaken consciousnesses. In order to demonstrate how that is refuted by Sautrantika, Shubhagupta's proof of external objects says the object of the consciousness of a healthy eye is not an external object. It is because it is conscious and because it appears as an external object like a dream or seeing a double moon. That's confusing. Okay. And if you think that this is because the consciousness is mistaken or things such as forms are unsuitable to be objects, there would be no objects of observation. Both would be unpleasing. So I think Shubhagupta is starting off by uh, quoting the Chittamatras. Chittamatra asserts that forms, the objects of valid consciousnesses that rely on sense faculties, such as the eyes, are not external objects, but instead have the nature of internal consciousnesses. Therefore, their appearance as external objects is simply mistaken, like a mind that perceives various objects in a dream, and a mind that perceives one moon as two moons. Sautrantika says that this is untenable. Uchitamantrans assert that forms are not perceived as they appear to the eye consciousness as if they were external and distant cutoff. Are you saying that this is because the consciousness that perceives them in that way is mistaken with respect to its own object? Or are you saying that such forms are not suitable as objects of valid consciousnesses that rely on the sense faculties? Regardless, either way, it's untenable because such a consciousness would have no object of observation, which is, a, is um, 
again goes against the definition of consciousness consciousness is defined as that which has an object that which has its own object so it would not be a consciousness these are the faults of the chitta position that they express furthermore in dreams things happen like having a limb cut off but the events in those dreams do not exist in reality if external objects do not exist at all and we're like being beheaded in a dream that at the time of an actual execution the beheading would not take place at all if you accept that being beheaded at the time of execution and the growth of the body are like things in a dream then there would be no need to stop to try to stop one's enemy from cutting off one's head or to try to bring about the growth of the body. These are the faults of the Chittamachran's positions that they express. They say if there's no external phenomena, then it wouldn't matter if your head were cut off. Uh, let's see, skipping the quote. Thus a consciousness that is deceived with a regard to such things as its object or its time is mistaken. Consciousness that is not deceived with regard to its object is not mistaken. <laughs> that didn't really add a whole lot. Apart from that, there's no definition of an unmistaken consciousness. Therefore, it is not tenable to assert that such things as an eye consciousness that realizes forms of mistaken consciousness. It is true that consciousness is whose dominant condition, the sense faculty, is damaged through such things as disease are mistaken. However, in the absence of those causes of error, the Chittamatra statement that all sense consciousnesses are mistaken is sheer fancy. Expressing the faults of not accepting external objects, Shubhagupta says, an undeceived consciousness is unmistaken. Those that are deceived are mistaken. A consciousness that is undeceived with regard to object time and another person is known to be unmistaken. There's no other de definition of unmistaken. He hasn't really proved anything. He's just asserted things this, over and over again, skipping the next quote. Chittamatra expresses the fault that if external objects existed, then it would absurdly follow that when the form of a single person was seen by a friend and by an enemy, that single form would have the nature of being both desirable and undesirable at the same time. To dispel that fault, they say that it is not tenable that a single external form would appear as desirable to a friend and undesirable to an en enemy. Therefore, that form is merely the nature of an internal mind. The Sautrantika say, this is untenable. Such things as beauty and ugliness arise in dependence on the cause of growing accustomed to the faults and good qualities of a single form. Through growing, growing accustomed in that way, such differences arise, leading to the production of an awareness that of what is desirable and undesirable. To say that differences arise in that way. Merely through the power of the nature of internal consciousness is nonsense. To prove that the position that external objects exist is correct, Shubhagupta finally says a real form that's both desirable and undesirable cannot be a single external form. <clears throat> In the same way, this is merely a mind. To say that is nonsense. The beauty of something is caused by growing accustomed to its qualities. A division in causes creates a division that affects the instances of which 
of what is beneficial. The text also discusses at length how the Chittamatra argue, argument for the certainty of simultaneous observation, which they use to refute external objects, is untenable. So, that didn't, that was not very convincing, was it? <laughs> that was pretty lame. That was strangely really lame. How Sautrantikas posits external objects. I guess they didn't say how they prove, but how they posit. That was rather disappointing. Comprehending awareness. Okay, we're just about out of time, so maybe this is a good time to pause. Pretty dry stuff, huh? So you've changed into a different costume, Derek. Oh, I'm no longer in a, an emerging property? Well, you've emerged in a four-legged furry form. That's right. Oh, my video went off somehow. <laughs> Thought it might have been your Halloween costume. Yeah, as a husky. Boy, these guys know how really are know how to make things boring. <laughs> Is there actually in the literature what you would consider a great or good presentation of the distinctions between the systems? We were going to look at um, Mipom. Mipom right. is so much more interesting. It's, it's a little more outliney and simpler, yeah. <coughs> yeah, th this is uh, really extensively drawn out and repetitive. Um, comp well, let's look at this real quick. Comprehending awareness is um, th this is the scheme that we've looked at before of like what is valid cognition in the systems, right? And so valid cognition in Sautrantika has uh, four types. There's uh, direct valid cognition of uh, the senses and direct valid cognition of the mind, yogic direct valid cognition, and self-aware direct cognition. So in this in this paragraph, <clears throat> in accordance with what appears in such works as blah blah blah, Sautrantika asserts there are two means of valid knowledge direct perception and inference. There are two types of direct valid knowledge, reflexive awareness and awareness of what is other. Self-awareness and other awareness is, <coughs> is an unnecessary but uh, simple way of dividing things up. <coughs> and there are three types of awareness of what is other. Sense direct, that relies on the physical sense faculty as the unique dominant condition, dominant condition meaning the sense faculty condition, 
is, is its condition, and yogic direct that relies on the union of serenity or insight, uh, shamatha and vipassana, has its dominant condition. I skip mental direct perception that relies on just the mind as its dominant condition. So there's those three types of uh, direct cognition. The divisions of direct perception already been explained. And let's see, valid knowledge and its effects an essential point related to how direct perception is posited as well as proofs of the two types of awareness later. The system asserts that there are three conditions for sense direct perception. The observed object, which is the external object that's apprehended, the dominant condition, which is the sense faculty, it's its foundation, and the immediately preceding condition on the next page, which is the mind that arises immediately earlier or before. Many important points, such as how these arise, how they search, the collection of consciousness to be 6 and 51 and so forth, have already been explained. Uh, let's see. Vibhashika does not assert self-experiencing or, or self-aware consciousness. However, Sautradikas do. Um, just as the butter lamp illuminates itself and other phenomena, an internal consciousness or awareness not only illuminates its object, it also illuminates itself. Therefore, they assert in accordance with this passage that a single consciousness has two natures or modes, the aspect of apprehending the internal object and the aspect of apprehending the external object. And then skipping the quote, turning to the reasonings that prove reflexive awareness, the primary one is Dignagas, says it is proved through being recalled at a later time. This idea that when we remember things, we remember knowing them, we remember experiencing them. <clears throat> At the very bottom of the page, it says that is at the same time that a sense consciousness that cognizes an external object becomes manifest, an awareness of its own feelings, such as pleasure must, pleasure must be posited. If reflexive awareness did not exist, it would lead to the absurd consequence such that a mind that apprehends a long string of letters would not be possible because we would forget the letter before if we didn't have a sense of self-awareness. These points uh, must be accepted as the Sautrantika system. The arguments of these two masters are used to re prove reflexive awareness are closely related to the ar arguments for the two modes of awareness and they will be discussed at length in the fourth volume. Another position unique to Sautrantika is it asserts that there is non-conceptual mental direct perception in which the sense consciousness serves as the immediately preceding condition and for which, like a sense consciousness, its object of apprehension is things such as external forms, specifically characterized phenomena. They assert that this is set forth in a sutra that says monk's knowledge of form has two aspects. It relies on the eye and the mind. The existence of such mental direct valid knowledge is disputed by other schools. So uh, there's this idea that there's a moment of mental direct perception that follows sense direct perception before the mind starts to uh, associate and conceptualize and think about things.
should we should pause there. There's a, a few interesting things about mental direct perception that they'll go into, and we'll finish up so Trantica next week. And um, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll I think we'll use Mepom's version more and flesh it out where needed from this text. Uh, because this text goes into really unnecessary, uh, endless detail or repetition of things. Any final thoughts or comments? It's very helpful to uh, help you sleep at night, though, this book, in case anybody has that problem still. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the storming waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you, everyone. Nice to see you. Thank you, Derek. Take care. Be well. See you soon.